Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Helen Thompson, a professor of political economy at Cambridge University and prolific author of popular and scholarly commentator on energy policy, geopolitics, and virtually everything in between. Her 2022 book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is a good example. It's a tour de force, and it's now out in paperback. I'm grateful to talk to her about the book, including, among other topics, the politics of energy price inflation, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and what they tell us about broader trends influencing the future of democratic politics. Helen, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much, Sean, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. One of the most fascinating parts of your book is that it involves, to a certain degree, what one might describe as energy determinism. That is to say, you make the case that fossil fuels are a major driver of economic and geopolitical developments. You write, quote, 20th and early 21st century economic and political history is impenetrable without understanding what has followed from the production, consumption, and transportation of oil and gas, unquote. Talk about that insight, Helen. Why do you think we must understand energy to understand the disorder referred to in your book's title? I think that we have to start here geopolitically because I think that we can't really understand historically the shifts in geopolitical power from the end of the 19th century through the 20th century and into this one without thinking of them through the lens of energy. So, for instance, it makes a big difference to the relative power of European states in the world when coal is the primary energy source compared to when oil is added into that, not that oil replaces coal, because none of the major European powers except Austria have any oil, and they have to get into competitive empire in parts of the world where they're not necessarily imperially strong in order to try and stay in that energy game. I don't think you can understand the catastrophes of the first half of the 20th century without understanding how that competition played out and what the particular consequences of it were for Germany. So if then we move into like the the 21st century and we look at what's been going on in the last couple of decades and particularly what happened in the 2010s, which in a present tense sense is my starting place in disorder, we can say that something really significant happens. And this is before we get to the energy transition. And that is that the United States, which had become the world's largest oil importer, goes back to being the world's largest oil producer with some export capacity, significant reduction in the volume of oil imports, and China 
becomes the world's largest oil importer. Now, that doesn't explain everything that happened geopolitically in the 2010s, but it sets like a context for it. Then if we stand back and say, well, how did that change from the American side? The answer is the US shale oil boom. So basically, instead of drilling for what gets called conventional oil, using hydraulic technology to fracture rocks to get the oil from it. Now, shale's been, how to do that, fracking as it's called sometimes, has been a known technology for quite some time. In fact, you start, go back to the 1970s and you can see Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter saying America needs to develop shale. But shale's pretty expensive. It's pretty capital intensive, even by the standards of oil. So if we say, why did the shale boom then happen in the 2010s? We have to look at the economic environment in which that happened. And that very much is, I think, the monetary and financial environment post-2008, because that created conditions of very cheap credit. It created conditions where investors were looking for some return on their capital, given how difficult it was in other areas. And buying junk bonds, so high-yield bonds from shale companies, became an in something that was attractive to them and that they were willing to do. Meanwhile, though, to begin with, uh, this extracting oil by shale, technology was less developed, it's very expensive. The consequences of that is to send oil for about three years, averaging above $100 a barrel, something that had never happened before. And if you look at the epicenter of the Eurozone crisis in that period, like 2011, you can see the European Central Bank responding to those $100 plus oil prices, so the inflation coming from oil by raising interest rates. And then if you look at that, what the consequences of that were for Britain's relationship with the European Union, you can see that a divergence of the economic path that Britain took in response to that oil-driven inflation and that the European Central Bank took started to have an effect on the numbers of people coming from Southern Europe into European, sorry, into Britain. And then you're in Brexit politics. So even when energy is not the direct cause of what's going on, the ramifications of it playing out in some sense systemically matter to things that look like they've got nothing to do with energy. There's just a ton of insight in that answer, and we're going to pursue some of those different lines of discussion. But I'd be remiss if I didn't observe that the book was first released on February 24th, 2022, the same day as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How does the war fit into your thesis about the interrelationship between energy and geopolitics? Uh, that's a really good question, Sean, and I've tried to grapple with that question in the chapter that I've written for the paperback edition, which covers essentially last year and trying to think about 2022 in the context of the long history that I want to tell. I mean, on the one hand, I would say you cannot explain why Putin chose to invade Ukraine and use an energy, in any way, energy determinist lens to do that. There's no doubt that there are some energy resources in Ukraine. There's also no doubt that there's some very fertile land in southern Ukraine and that one can construct a motive for Putin that was tied to those things. But I don't think it's actually the explanation of why he invade, decided to invade. I think that's much more 
to do with his rejection of the legitimacy of a Ukrainian nation state. But if you say, first of all, how did Ukraine-Russia relations develop between Ukraine's independence in 1991 and Russia's invasion in February of 2022, then energy pipelines, in particular gas pipelines, are absolutely central to that relationship. So probably the most ongoing contentious relationship, sorry, issue in the Russia-Ukraine relationship during the period of Ukraine independence has been the pipelines. If you then say, why did Putin not think that there would be a particularly strong European response to his actions. So why wasn't there in some sense more deterrence from Europe for him? I think the answer here very much is to do with energy. He thought that Germany in particular was far too dependent upon Russia for gas especially to be able to put up much resistance to his invasion of Ukraine. So I don't think that it in any way is an energy war, though there are some energy stakes of the war. But I do think you can't understand the calculus that confronted Putin. You can't understand the history of Russia-Ukraine relations in the period of independence without really focusing on the energy questions. There's long been a view that the West's dependence on Middle Eastern oil has necessarily elevated the region in terms of its geopolitical attention and influence. You mentioned the shale gas revolution in the United States earlier, Helen. How has that development and the growing shift to non-fossil fuel forms of energy changed those dynamics? Uh, notwithstanding the current conflict between Israel and Hamas, are we entering a world in which the Middle East will matter less? I think that that was the great hope of the Obama presidency. Uh, I think that there's a very clear relationship between Obama's foreign policy decision-making in relation to the Middle East, both getting out of Iraq in, even after the red line that he drew about chemical weapons use, and his decisions in relation to China, that the idea was, in Obama's mind, shale bring American gas independence, did not have to worry anywhere near so much about the Middle East, and consequently it could get out of trouble spots in the Middle East, and it could do what Obama liked to call the pivot to Asia. But I think it's pretty clear that even by the end of his presidency, forlorn, I mean, they're having to go, he's having to go back in not with ground troops, but in the air in order to fight ISIS. And if you put it in perhaps long historical terms, you would have to say, did even the Obama administration, which has perhaps been the most detached about the Middle East of the last three presidents, really want China to take over as the dominant naval power in the Persian Gulf, keeping that water open, those waters open, I should say, for the passage of oil tankers? I think the answer to that is no. So if it's the case that the United States withdraws because it doesn't need Middle Eastern oil so much, and that's a bit more complicated than it seems in itself, then somebody else, another power, is going to act as the dominant maritime power in the Persian Gulf. That would be China. And it's not at all clear why any American president is going to want China being the dominant naval power 
in the Persian Gulf. If we then look at it from Europe's European countries' point of view, is they were already, or some of them anyway, I should say, like UK is a good example here, dependent upon gas imports from Qatar. And what has happened in the wake of Russia's not only invasion of Ukraine, but then essentially stopping the pipeline gas that went through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and through Yamal Europe, so not the ones that went through Ukraine, is, is that a number of European countries, obviously led by Germany, had to buy much more gas in liquid natural gas markets. So now we have both the French and the Dutch signing long-term contracts, 20-year-plus contract, 27 years, I think, in both instances, with Qatar. So regardless of what else is going on, actually on gas, the European countries are being more dependent on long-term contracts. And you can actually see them buying more Middle Eastern oil as well because they don't want to buy Russian oil, or at least they don't want to buy it directly. In a discussion about the growing great power competition between the US and China, you make the case that the shift to green energy, broadly defined, risks exacerbating tensions between the two countries. Why, Helen? How, in your mind, will the energy transition influence their geopolitical relationship? Well, the crucial thing here is that thus far, where low carbon energy is concerned and the metals and minerals that are required for low carbon energy. China has been doing in geoeconomic terms, let's call it that, better than anybody else. So if you just take the metals and particularly the processing of metals, uh, China dominates those supply chains. In terms of rare earth minerals, they're not actually rare, but, but they're complicated to mine and very dirty um, to mine. China doesn't only dominate the processing, but processing of them it also dominates the extraction of them. And so the United States, in order to pursue the climate objectives of the Biden administration, needs to import rare earth minerals from China. It has a dependency. Now, it's a dependency that it wants to break, but for the time being, that's, that's, where, things, that's where things are. So I think that what you can see in Washington is a sense that China has got the potential, if we just think about low carbon energy, actually to be the low carbon energy geopolitical power in the way in which the United States was the oil era geopolitical power. But the hope is in Washington that they still got time to, to do something about it, and particularly to do something about what will be either more domestic metal mining or closer relationships with countries like Australia being the classic example here where the metals and minerals are plentiful and where the US has good relations. I think there's kind of like a separate, not quite separate, but semi-separate issue going on with electric vehicle manufacturing. So if you think back to like the middle third or a lot of the second half of the 20th century, then whose country's cars were the best? Who's were the most successful export-wise? That was a big part of like what industrial competition was in the second half of the, the 20th century. You can tell a story of like American decline in that respect and Japanese and West German um, ascendancy. And we can see thus far that China is kind of quite way ahead on uh, electric vehicles. So if we transpose that fossil fuel era competition about cars into low carbon energy electrification, 
then China's looks like it has the uh, advantages at the moment. Now, I think the difficulty for China is, is that we live in a multi-energy source world. And so China has those advantages where low carbon energy is concerned, but it has to continue with its long-standing problem of energy insecurity where fossil fuel energy is concerned. It has to import a lot of oil and gas from abroad, and it has to do it often through trade routes that the United States Navy has got the capacity to block, in particular, the Strait of Malacca. Canada, as you know, is a major energy producer. From a domestic point of view, it's a key sector in terms of employment, exports, and government revenue. But it's not obvious that our status as an energy exporter has influenced the country's global standing. If you agree, Helen, why do you think that is? Have we failed to leverage our energy resources in some way? I think it's partly about volume. So if you look like early on in maybe even the early 2010s, when people were talking about non-conventional oil, they generally said shale and tar sands. And tar sands, tar sands meant Canada. But if you look at the trajectory of Canadian oil production growth through the 2010s in the United States, obviously they're not the same, that, that non-conventional oil, the epicenter of it is the United States and, and not Canada. But I think there probably is some issue about whether Canadian governments have really been willing to think through what the implications and consequences geopolitically are of Canada's position as an energy exporter. I mean, obviously, where oil is concerned, there's the big three, which is you know, United States, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And the particular geopolitical leverage that comes from being an oil exporter really belongs to those three. And the smaller ones who are aligned with Russia and Saudi Arabia in OPEC plus exercise their influence in that cartel. And that's obviously Canada's not in a in a in a cartel. So it's trying to be small to meet well, more medium sized um, producer and exercise independent influence outside a cartel. You could perhaps raise a question, I suppose I haven't quite thought about it like that before, about the issues about whether of aligning with the US. I don't mean necessarily in terms of actual production decisions, but just in terms of thinking through what the geopolitical implications of Canada's position as an exporter. I want to turn to capital and financial markets, which represent another strand in the book. Uh, Next year marks the 80th anniversary of the famous Bretton Woods Conference, which gave us a model of global financial arrangements that lasted until the early 1970s. What in hindsight were the main strengths and weaknesses of the Bretton Woods model? And what do you think of growing calls for new Bretton Woods? How possible do you think it is to reach a multilateral agreement on something like that today? I mean, I, I, I think I could start really with that question and then work backwards. I mean, I, I think the answer is that it's ex- exceptionally difficult. And I think the history of Bretton Woods tells us that even in the period between 1944, so the actual Bretton Woods Conference, let's say 1950, so it's actually only a six-year period. What multilateral means between 1944 and 1950 is like unrecognisable because in 1944, it's obviously a conference of the wartime allies. The Soviet Union represented at Bretton Woods. Indeed, on the Bretton Woods Agreement, the Soviet Union was going to have the third biggest drawing rights. It was a way in which essentially the IMF under American leadership could provide credit to the Soviet Union in what was going to be 
supposed to be the, the post-war world. But by 1950, Soviet Union is long out of it. I mean, it was this, I think it's December 1945 when Stalin makes it clear he's not going to ratify the Bretton Woods Agreement. And then plan in 1944 was for Germany was the Morgenthau plan was the literal deindustrialization of of Germany the idea that Germany was going to be in Bretton Woods would have been utterly inconceivable by 1950 West Germany is in Bretton Woods and obviously the same becomes true like of Japan as well so multilateral as a wartime alliance and multilateral in the Cold War they just don't mean anything like the same um, thing I think the advantages of of Bretton Woods were particularly for the West European countries uh, in that they it provided a framework in which that they could experience through the 50s in particular financial and exchange rate stability in a way that they hadn't been able to experience in the recovery years after the First World War. So the 1950s did not turn out like the 1920s and that meant the 1960s didn't turn out like the catastrophes of the, the 1930s. Now, I don't think that Bretton Woods is the, the only explanation of that by far, but I, I, I think the fact that there was conditions, international economic conditions that allowed for economic recovery in ways that underpin democratic political stability, that is a quite important story of the post-war era. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. The book argues that the precursor to Brexit was the Eurozone crisis and the aftermath of the global financial crisis itself. How did the EU's response to the financial and fiscal crisis lay the groundwork for Britain's exit in your mind? And more importantly, where does it leave European institutions more generally? Is the Eurozone institutionally and politically capable of navigating an era of disorder? I think in terms of Brexit, that we have to understand that the financial crisis followed by the Eurozone crisis really exposed a central fault line of the UK's membership of the European Union, which was the UK was in the single market of the European Union. It was outside the Eurozone. And yet it was the offshore financial centre of the Eurozone. So obviously there were some other North European states that weren't members of the Eurozone either, Sweden, Denmark, I think most consequentially, but they didn't have... London as a financial centre. And it's also notable that during that period of the Eurozone crisis, they largely aligned monetary policy with what the European Central Bank was doing. Not entirely, uh, but Britain goes down the road of quantitative easing in 2009. European Central Bank's not going to turn quantitative easing until 2015. 
So you have that structural fault line imposed, sorry, you know, exposed, not imposed, exposed. And then we get to 2011, as I said in an earlier answer, and we have this problem of oil-driven inflation again. And we have the Bank of England saying, we're going to let that go. And we have the European Central Bank saying, we can't let that go because our mandate is price stability. So you see that macroeconomic um, divergence. Now, I'm not so sure whether by itself, if it, that was the only thing that was going on, whether Cameron would have, David Cameron would have made his decisions in the same way and the, the referendum outcome would have turned out when it did, as it did, I should say. But what is the case is, is that the Eurozone crisis was really getting going at pretty much the same time as the Lisbon Treaty was finally being like ratified. So that's like 2009, the autumn of 2009, after the Irish second referendum. And you've gone, then got this issue where the, the British election of May 2010 brings the Conservatives with the Liberal Democrats to power. And the Conservatives, and actually the Liberal Democrats don't really dissent from this at all, they say there's a big problem with the way in which the Lisbon Treaty was ratified in the UK. We don't support it. There should have been a referendum. And they can't have a referendum because it's already ratified by the time that they're in power. Yes. So they then say, right, we're going to legislate such that so that this can never happen again. We're going to have say the next time there's an EU treaty, there has to be a referendum in the in the UK. And then Cameron also says, because we didn't get to oppose the Lisbon Treaty, we're going to try and negotiate some powers back from the European Union, which was always, I mean, really in practical terms, a non-starter. But he was committed to that. So then when you put the way he's trying to deal with that problem together with the Eurozone crisis and they run into each other, particularly in this particular summit that happens in December 2011 when Cameron tries to veto an EU treaty to deal with the Eurozone crisis and they just say, OK, we'll do it without you outside the formal institutional structure of the European Union, or then it becomes a, a joined-up problem. So the, join, the problem becomes the referendum issues from Lisbon plus the Eurozone crisis. And then by the time we get to 2015, so the time in which Cameron's starting to try to do the renegotiations before the referendum, we've got the Turkey migration issue coming into play as well. And he's completely on the back foot about it. So in that sense, it's it's not the Eurozone crisis by itself. It's, it's fairly central. It's the way in which it intersects with these other things that are going on at the same time. And if I can just follow up, Helen, and, and ask you to, reflect on my other question uh, about the extent to which this experience signals structural issues within the, the European Union and the Eurozone that may present challenges for its ability to navigate some of the broader secular trends that you outline in the book. I think if you looked at it from the point of view of the, the Eurozone, the immediate effect of the referendum results so before the UK had actually left was is that there were a number of people in the European Union, and I'd include the then Commission president, certain members of the French government in particular, and Macron after he won the presidential election in 2017 in, in France, who thought that British exit was a way really to resolve, in one sense, fundamental impasse within the eurozone in its relationship with the eu which was that you have the eurozone that is incomplete in relation to the european union now i think that 
all the states understood and the commission understood they're never going to force the UK to join the euro, but perhaps that they could force some other states to join the euro. And there's quite a lot of rhetoric of that kind, like basically saying you choose. Either you're in completely in the EU, or if you don't want to be in the euro, you need to get out of the EU. So that's kind of the bit, the direction of travel, but it doesn't work. And partly it doesn't work because all this then runs in to the pandemic. Uh, and then you've got a new crisis of the eurozone, both because you start to see that quantitative easing doesn't do the stabilizing work it had been doing internally since 2015. And then I think it was at uh, late April, I think it was early May actually, of 2020, the German Constitutional Court said that there was a constitutional problem in Germany with quantitative easing. But this is the point where you could say, well, look, actually, the Eurozone was right running into all its own internal fault lines, leaving Brexit aside. But Merkel switched her position quite radically because she'd begun that period by saying we're not having any joint debt agreements. That's not the way forward. And then she says, no, we're going to have to have something. So faced with the choice between there's an existential threat to the Eurozone and having to to change German position, she changes German position. Now, I think though that you can nonetheless see that actually the way that that was then done by turning it into common EU debt rather than common Eurozone debt reinforced this problem of the misalignment between the Eurozone and the whole EU because it effectively gave countries like Poland and Hungary a little bit of a veto power as to how that this developed. Now, I think at the moment, the, the Eurozone is kind of like muddled through, that the pressures on the financial markets are not sufficient at the moment really to bring that fault line back to the fore, nor is it sufficient to bring the issue of Italy's debt back to the, the centre. But they're still there. They haven't gone away. I mean, I think the, the Eurozone's got quite a lot of muddled through capacity, <laughs> particularly if the German government keeps being flexible about the difficult questions for it. It's certainly proven to have muddle through capacity uh, over the past decade. I want to come back to China, which is increasingly the subject of a consensus in an otherwise polarized uh, American and to a certain extent Canadian politics. There's a growing view that post-Cold War assumptions about China's participation in the global economy and the potential effects on its domestic and global poise were wrong and that the West must adopt a more hawkish stance, including imposing national security standards on Chinese investment and imports. Let me ask you a two-part question, Helen. First, what do you think the implications are for this new consensus around China? And two, to what extent do you think it will risk becoming a source of tension between North America and Europe? I think it's, it's very clear now that the consensus within the United States, at least, on tough with China about trade, tough with China about technology, and probably quite tough with China about Taiwan, runs across the board. It's quite robust. So if you just look at it in terms of the shift that Trump made away from the policies pursued by his two predecessors, and then look at it, what Biden's done, then on this, Biden's really doubled down on Trump's move, I think it's actually quite stronger. I mean, more confrontational in a number of ways, certainly on the technology side. And I think the semiconductor chip issue is is like central to that. 
if you compare Trump's initially soft rhetoric on Hong Kong compared to what has some of the things at least that Biden has said about Taiwan, again, I'd say the policy's got more hawkish, not less so. And that's despite the fact that obviously there was an impulse in the Biden administration to begin with to say we need to detach climate change from the confrontation or questions, and that hasn't been possible to do. In terms of the US and Europe, I think here we can see like really clear tensions that have been there actually since the beginning of the Biden presidency. So if you look at those months in that really the weeks before he took office, so between the election and the inauguration, it's Merkel and Macron made sure that they had that investment agreement with China done as they saw it before Biden could come into office and start pressuring them about it. Now, it didn't get ratified because of other events to do with China's issues with European parliamentarians and the Hong Kong crisis, but that was quite a statement of intent. We can see with quite a number of the things that Macron and Schultz have said that they don't really want to decouple from China and that they're not prepared to see it as a zero-sum game or binary choice in which the European Union has to choose either China's side or the EU side. Now, when at the same time then the US is doing things in regard to the energy transition through the Inflation Reduction Act that is also protectionist towards the European Union as much as it's protectionist towards China, then obviously that actually creates some potential for common interests between the European Union and, and China over this. And I think we might see some of that. Nonetheless, it's clear that within the European Union, there's also internal divisions. But if you take Italy over the last couple of years, really since Draghi's premiership in Italy, Italy's policy has been having been a Belt and Road member to pull out and to get much closer to the Americans on China. So I think it's going to be actually quite difficult for the European Union to maintain any, or really not even just to maintain, because I don't think it's there in the first place, to have much unity over the China question and then how it fits into the US question. Let's wrap up with your analysis about democracy itself. You write about the tensions and trade-offs between what you call, quote, democratic excess and aristocratic excess. What might be jurisdictional examples of these two poles? And Helen, how should we think about the trade-offs between them? Yeah, I mean, the idea that I had here is that lots of the ways in which forms of government were analysed in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, or Athens and Rome, I should say, was essentially that a form of government was destroyed by its own by its own excess. And the historian Polybius sort of articulated this most forcefully. So democracies were destroyed by too much democracy over time. And aristocracies were destroyed by too much aristocracy um, over time. If you wanted an example of the aristocracies, then you would maybe put to the you know the French ancien regime, the French monarchy. I mean, it's not quite, but obviously it came within in an aristocratic um, society. Now, my point about representative democracy was that it's a form of government that has a bit of democracy in it. Everybody gets to vote, but it has a bit of aristocracy in it, in the sense of government of the few because it's representative and only a few are doing the actual like decision making. So democratic excess would come when you have a, the often the politicians appealing to 
the prejudices and darkest passions, if you like, of voters, uh, and that they wanted to do things that are injurious to minorities. I mean, it's not perhaps the only example of democratic excess, but that might be one. Aristocratic excess would be when the politicians use power to enrich themselves. And I think if you then sort of translate that into American politics in the 2010s, which is sort of the context in which I started to think about this, we could see that one of the ways in which Trump worked as a politician was simultaneously to, in a way, like whip up nativist passions that might go under the democratic excess category. But at the same time, he was partly able to do that because he was offering a critique in his own way of all the, what we might think of as oligarchic tendencies of American Republic, where so much money is needed in order to run for office that those who run for office and end up like rather well off, not least because of what they are able to do once they leave office. You have these philanthropic foundations like the Clinton Foundation, which looks like it's sort of, well, it looks, shall we say, like when it was operating, that it wasn't always so careful where the donors were coming from in relation to where the influence might then be exercised by Hillary Clinton when she was um, at the at the State Department. I think you could then, when it came to European Union, translate the aristocratic excess into technocratic excess so that you take a lot of decisions out of democratic politics. I think the Eurozone does this almost like in its DNA in some respects with the European um, Central Bank and say, look, we can't have democracy getting in the way of this. And that that causes resentments over time from voters who say, look, we vote for things and it doesn't change anything because the technocrats keep deciding the same thing. Yeah, I should say, Helen, I thought it was a useful frame to think about modern politics, including in Canada. Canada's political system is highly efficient, and we haven't experienced the sort of political disruption that we've seen elsewhere, but it's also subject to a high degree of conformity and the depoliticization of certain issues through judicial activism, and I would argue even collusion amongst major political parties to take certain those issues off the table. How does one assess the trade-offs and risks that these approaches pose for political stability and social cohesion? How, in other words, does one judge whether a country like Canada has crossed too far into aristocratic excess or, as you put it, technocratic excess before it's too late? I think that's a great that's a great question, Sean. I think in one way the answer is we don't we don't know. I, I think though that what we can see from the United States, where I think that this is clear is what's going on is that the two sides of the problem just like reinforce each other. So it's not like you just get the problem of aristocratic success or you just get the problem of like democratic success. Trump manages to like to cut across both. And then the, the more we can see that moves are made against Trump, because of the dangers that he poses to democratic politics, the more that it looks like the politics of aristocratic excess, and the more then that Trump has got something to use in the way in which he does democratic, seemingly like democratic um, politics. So, I mean, where the US is concerned, I think it's quite hard to be anything other than pessimistic for the moment about like where the cycles of this actually, where the cycles of this actually go. 
I think in other countries that there's still more space where where I think a lot of it is actually about the technocratic element of it, where there's like, okay, without opening up everything to democratic politics, because I don't think that can ever really be the case and have democratic stability, that some things need to go back into democratic deliberation that have been taken out of it. I mean, I think in the UK case, obviously, uh, where Brexit was concerned, migration was perhaps a central example of that because there were a set of constitutional rules entrenched in the single market. And then migration is now back to being a matter of democratic politics for the UK. It doesn't mean actually that migration has come down. Indeed, quite the contrary, it's gone up. But it, it was in, if you like, the constitutional technocratic realm, and now it's back in the democratic realm. I want to end on the book's title, Alan. What characteristics do you think will permit certain jurisdictions to navigate disorder better or worse than others? How, in effect, can countries protect themselves from being harmed by the strands of disorder that you identify? I think that quite a lot of the vulnerability to disorder for the countries in Europe and like North America actually comes from their like geopolitical vulnerability and then the relationship of that to international economic questions. But I, I give you, I think the way, the clearest case to think through that is Germany, actually, because if you sort of were looking in 2017-ish, 2017, 2018, maybe, maybe all, all the way to 2019, so pre-pandemic, you, you would have said that, that Germany was one of the more stable or not stable, so that's not right word, least subject to disruption of the, the European democracies. True, you had the rise of the AFD then, but actually it had actually potentially peaked, whereas Britain had had the Brexit referendum, France had completely had its party system thrown you know, into turmoil really by Macron's presidency. You'd had the Catalan referendum in Spain, you'd had the situation in Italy in which you essentially had technocratic, completely technocratic government for like a period um, of time. And Germany looked different. And I think you could they would tie that to that. Germany was not vulnerable within the EU internal geopolitics because it was the most powerful state in the European Union. So it wasn't having to deal with, if you like, the consequences of German decision-making for everybody else in the same way in which the British or the French or the Italians were having to. But you move the clock on to last year, to 2022, February 2022, and Germany is about to get an almighty geopolitical shock when Russia invades. It's going to have to reinvent a lot of its energy trade. It's going to find that there's going to be quite deep divisions, not only what to do about the energy question itself, like do they go back to nuclear power or not? What do they do about relations with China, if relations with Russia have turned out in the way in which that they have? And lo and behold, German politics doesn't look quite as exempt from the disruption. And now the AFD is doing significantly better. Again, the three-party coalition that they have struggle to be 
in agreement about a number of issues, despite the fact that they've got a, a coalition agreement. It's not clear really what they're going to do about their China policy. So I think to some extent, there isn't there aren't internal structures that protect. Now, you can maybe to some extent that they do. If a party system can can absorb discontent, it's better than if it can't. But at the same time, I don't think it's just a function here of like what the internal structures are. It's like where is a country in relation to this generally um, disruptive geopolitical situation? That's a, a ton of insight to end the conversation, which itself has been full of insight. The, the book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Helen Thompson, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sean. Thanks for your questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.